She just barged herself in <laughs> exactly. to the podcast. I wanted to feel connected. <laughs> and Koi Fam, our content manager. Hello. How's it going? It's, it's going. It's going well. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> so the first topic this week is ride-sharing apps, uh, obviously namely Uber and Grab here. So both of these services have exploded in popularity in Vietnam in recent years, uh, especially in Hanoi and Saigon, although it's also in Da Nang, a little bit in Hue, maybe some other cities. But this is having a huge impact on local taxi companies and other you know, modes of transport, while authorities have also struggled to manage them since regulations to cover them don't really exist. They're kind of making them on the fly. Then we'll talk about local music and musicians, which Data and Koi have particularly been enjoying recently. And our interview segment will feature conversation with a special guest. And then we'll end, as always, with Bot Me Banter, when we'll talk about something that's uh, really on our mind, good, bad, what have you. Look around at almost any stoplight in Saigon and you'll likely see a flock, a herd, whatever the collective noun is, of Uber and Grab motorbike helmets. So much like in other major cities around the world, these ride-sharing services have completely disrupted the traditional transportation game in Vietnam, especially in the major cities. Well, as mentioned, city leaders are often at a loss over how to handle them because these are brand new. Uh, so Uber and Grab are obviously hugely convenient. And listen to any group of expats for long enough and you'll hear a bit session about their Uber or Grab, Grab are getting lost. I've done it. I've done it with Dana. I am an Dana. expert. <laughs> <laughs> at Uber driver getting lost. Yes. But in the, at the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, they're cheaper, generally cheaper and easier to use than, you know, Venusun or Mylin or a traditional Sayom that just phone. Sequoia, you've grown up in Saigon, obviously been getting around somehow all these years. Uh, how has the arrival of these services changed how you, your friends, your family get around? Well, I don't know about my family and my friends, but for me personally, Uber and Grab has changed the way I drink. Oh. That's good. <laughs> yeah. So before, if you finished a drinking session with your friends at like 1am or something, it's very hard to have a cab. Or like just cough or sell or anything. But now with Grab, you can just press a button and mm. then the drivers arrive. So it's very safe. So from like I've started kind of like leaving my bike at home and taking a Grab to whatever. Responsible yeah. right? for you. And, uh, and Take just, heed, listeners. Like for example, if I go drink with Dana. What? And we do, I, that never happens. <laughs> and we do that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I take a grab. Yeah. Um, and that also the price is really, really good compared to traditional taxi and um, sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom also noticed it and she's very cute. Um, she's just always scandalized by how low the price is. <laughs> <laughs> so she'll, be, she'll go on a grab and, and be'll, she'll be like talking to me about how expensive uh, how expensive it used to be and now it's so cheap. Mm-hmm. And she's like, how do they even eat like... So well, she, oh, that is a she, good question. She just tips them like twice the, the amount. Oh, when wow. they first, when Grab first started operating, like in the very beginning, it was sort of billed, I remember, as like a students, you know, earning money. So yeah. it was very low. The prices were lower than they are even now. 
And I remember taking one and feeling like I was stealing from someone. I was like, yeah. oh my God, it's so cheap. Yeah. And I asked somebody like, how are you, are you guys, you know, making yeah. any kind of money out of this? Because it used to be really expensive to take, to take taxis in general. Because mm-hmm. I remember going out when I was young, like before I know how to drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always like a special occasion. You, all, you only go out during the weekend and the family gets together and take a cab and then split the cab fare. Yeah. It's always like this whole luxury thing to yeah. take a cab. Yeah. But now it's so common and yeah. accessible due to the low price. Yeah, it's certainly changed the way I get around. I mean, I generally do motorbike, but again, if I'm drinking or something like that, it's, yeah, I've obviously only use taxis if I'm getting in at the airport just because grab's kind of a mess there. Yeah, it's easy. Um, and traditional Seoms, I couldn't tell the last time I take one, which I feel a little bad about sometimes, but when, even if, like, my Vietnamese is good enough that I can yeah. mm-hmm. uh, get through that, like, it's still kind of a challenge sometimes. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, with grab, you know, it's one price, even if they mm-hmm. drive 12 miles in the wrong direction. They used to... It's really given yeah. me a lot more things to complain about in some respects. <laughs> but so I will say, like, I took a sale recently. I had like a an issue with my phone, and so I couldn't use the apps. And I took a traditional sale, and obviously I paid more. Mm-hmm. But um, it was very refreshing to be on a bike where like this person knew exactly where they were going. Yeah. There was no confusion. Yes, like true. it was very it was very efficient in a mm-hmm. way. That I you sort of tell yourself like oh grab an Uber are efficient but then like you the, do have to give yourself you a buffer thing, time yeah. yeah and then people get lost and whatever I will say though like when you're talking about Uber or Grab compared to traditional taxis I've also met taxi drivers who have no idea where they're going so if yeah. you're gonna complain about something I mean it's kind of like you'll always find something to complain mm-hmm. about yeah and it's been quite the battle between the traditional and now the Uber and Grab I mean there's been actual like brawls between. Yeah. Grab drivers and say home drivers. Yeah. Uh, Especially at um, bus station and the mm, airport. That yeah. Happens yeah. All the time. Yeah. yeah the, and I know Venuson and Mylin have both lost thousands of drivers. Well, they lost thousands of drivers last year. And there was even a campaign. Was it Venuson? Did they have the, the stickers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell, pretty much telling people not to take Uber and Grab. Sticker writing campaign. Yeah, yeah. That didn't really actually go over very well. But anyway, so yeah. the battle is on as it has been in you know London, New York, mm-hmm. all those other major cities. And the city, these cities have also struggled with this too. I mean, I know the tax, there's almost every week there's a story about Uber or Grab either not paying enough taxes or just not straight up not paying taxes. I mean, who really knows the, in, the finer details? But at the end of last year, uh, you know, the city said Uber had to pay about $2.5 million in back taxes that they hadn't paid. And then that ended up, the city sued Uber, then they dropped it. Now Uber's suing the city. So obviously it's a huge mess. What's your take on these sort of regulatory issues? Well, I think the big problem, this is something that has worked to Uber's advantage in so many countries, not just Vietnam, but they have come into these different places where online businesses or businesses of this nature don't exist. And so there aren't regulations around how to operate these particular services. So there's, I mean, it's an issue, I think, right now all over the world. And actually, just last month, um, the European Union's highest court ruled that Uber is a taxi service in Europe. Mm. So they will start have to following, or will start having to follow, <laughs> can't speak English, gotcha. start having to follow um, these laws accorded, like, in the same way that taxi companies will. Um, and in some respects, I agree, you know, if you're making that kind of money, then you ought to be paying taxes that sort of reflect that. 
but I also think that taxi companies can also look at themselves and say, what can we do better to compete uh, with these services? Because I think campaigns like Vinasun's sticker campaign about how mm-hmm. it's unfair to them uh, that Uber and Grab exist. I think that that's looking at the competition and blaming them for your problems when you could yeah. also be doing yeah. something. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a reason Uber and Grab are so popular. And I mean, some of them are, they are making changes. Like I use my Lens new on-demand app when I was in Quay mm-hmm. recently because Grab wasn't really working. And it was great. Like the driver showed up in 30 seconds. It was cheap. He was a really nice driver. Yeah. He took us outside the city for a little bit and just like waited around. So that was a good experience. So maybe, they're, maybe they are learning. There you go. I mean, even some of the drivers we talked at the start about you know, how do these drivers make money? And recently, several hundred Grab bike drivers actually congregated and then drove in District 2 and then drove to mm-hmm. Grab's office in District 10 to complain because Grab upped their the cut they're taking yeah. from, I think, 20% to around 23%, which they're obviously not happy about. So we'll see where this goes in the coming year. I mean, Uber and Grab, they're not going anywhere, that's for sure. Yeah. Local music in Saigon. There's a lot more local bands, uh, you know, Vietnamese, singing in Vietnamese, for Vietnamese these days. It's changed a bit since the days when Cargo was around and international acts were coming in, which I'm still really sad that Cargo closed. But yeah, so I haven't really been to shows in a while, but Dana and Coy, you've been enlightening me and everyone else around you on local bands recently. Who are some of the people you've been listening to? Broad throwings groupies. Exactly. (laughs) Maybe metaphorically, not like no, a I'm literally. not going to clarify that. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer, um, haven't thrown any bras. Somebody else's bras. Okay. Yes. Well, so we've done uh, a Saigonese session, which is a music recording on this band called Gao uh, recently, last year, actually. Um, and ever since then, I've been like a true blues, Gao Huang groupies. I go to their concert, I listen to their music and everything. Sing all their words. To and I, I remember it, it all started with Saganir, like for, the, for indie music, when we wrote that article on like a, like a brief primer on indie music in Saigon yeah. in um, October 2016. Mm-hmm. And like things have changed so much since then, because I remember when I wrote that article, we have they have bands like in Hanoi had brand, had bands uh Dalai has some bands Saigon also has some indie acts, but they've mostly just performing they've been performing in like in single shows format only so mm-hmm. they would go to Yoko have a show and that's it, but like flash forward one year later everybody's mm-hmm. like going on tours now mm-hmm. so not did a pretty major Hanoi and Saigon show recently you went yeah. to one of them there yeah? I was in Saigon. And Gao uh, Huang also recently finished one of their, I think, their biggest tour ever. Yeah. They tour four or five locations all over Vietnam. So that's like a huge thing for everybody yeah. involved. And um, yeah, the, the scene just growing and growing, and it's a good thing. And what I like about it too is um, it is it's actually developing very fast, but it's still pretty small. So everybody involved, from the fans to the music producer to the composer to the drummers, even everybody just kind of know one another, and it's like a small family sort of. Yeah, it's very supportive. I think the the bands themselves 
all know each other and support each other. And I remember, like you mentioned, um, Hanoi and Saigon acts kind of like going back and forth between the two cities. Nyungdechea, which is a Hanoian band, came down here. And I remember seeing the guys from yeah. Kahui Huang in like Nyungdechea t-shirts <laughs> yeah, really at good. the show uh-huh. yeah, being adorable. very supportive, which was yeah. really great to see. Um, but then also concert goers are equally, whether they're like hardcore fans or they're just curious, people show up and it's basically like, you know, 20 something, uh, young Vietnamese making the music. And it's also 20 something young Vietnamese in the audience. And everyone is really supportive of each other and just of seeing what, you know, what these people have created. And I think that that's really cool as well, that, um, the whole community across, not just concert goers and musicians, but musicians across different genres, whether you have rappers or um, sort of like indie singer-songwriter, acoustic guitar kind of acts, or you have rock bands, like everyone is really supportive of one another and really excited to be there. And I've said to you guys many times, um, very polite, like people on stage are very, you know, (laughs) rappers will get up and like just, you know, throw... Explosive all over the place, <laughs> and then at the end, be like, "Thank you so much." Yeah, yeah. thank you so much. So, um, I think Eminem does that too. Yeah, it's <laughs> sort of, <laughs> but it's really cool to see. It's it's great to see that everyone's excited about it and that it's growing. Um, and especially because all of these musicians are, um, you know, they're they're young, but they're old enough that they're working and they have careers and they have mm. lives outside of all of this. Yeah. But they really care about it and they do it, and I think that's great. Yeah, and it's great to see that enthusiasm. I mean, I know the places they play at are generally kind of small. I haven't been to yeah. Soul Live Station. Is that Soul Live Project. Project. Yeah. That one is bigger from what... But anyway, so the, the places yeah. aren't that big. Like, again, there's no cargo, which is sort of mid-sized. So it's either like Yoko or the stadium by the airport where you can go see yeah. a, a canceled Ariana Grande show. Yeah. Um, oh, but it, don't mention her name. Oh, my God. My baby. Sorry. We'll, we'll get heckled. <laughs> we'll get heckled to all hell. No, but it, it's great to see these guys doing this when a lot of the more corporate shows are just like the same freaking DJs over and over again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but only there's one problem that I come across encounter recently when it comes to like supporting these bands mm-hmm. is that um so they all have their music figured out it seems to me like mm-hmm. everybody has character they can write lyrics that's good and yeah. intimate and authentic but um it's really hard to like support them financially for example mm-hmm. so gag uh, only recently put their newest uh ep on itunes Kai yeah. Huang has been doing it for a while. Kai Huang is pretty good with uh, with that side. But for example, Yung Du Jie, they're only on SoundCloud. Yeah. So if I want to support them by paying for their music on iTunes or something, I can buy it. You know, I bought their album when they were here, Ooh. and it's still, but it's a CD, Whoa. and I don't have Old a school. computer with a disk drive, <laughs> so I can't. I'm um, going to eventually get the music off there, oh, yeah. but I can't. My computer has a CD drive. Okay, can, well, yeah. noted. My computer's really old. <laughs> but yeah, there's, I think, it's interesting to, to see, I also bought Mok's album, mm-hmm. and when I did that, I like messaged them over Facebook. I transferred some money to an account and then somebody sent me like a Google Drive link. So it's definitely <laughs> on the honor system and everybody has their own way of doing it. But um, no, it's, it's one of the other things like you mentioned is that um, making money from it, you, you really have to become your own like spokesperson, mm-hmm. your own manager, your own show yeah. booker. And that I think is a challenge, but... You know, everybody is kind yeah. of figuring it out as they go. I mean, obviously we don't know like the ins and outs of what what it will take to upload their music to iTunes mm-hmm. and like how much they'll take on the artist, but 
I really like it's a small community like I said so everybody will want to support each other in one way or another so finding a way to get your music out in different commercial channels will be a good way for the community to thrive yeah, yeah. well let's hope it continues to thrive any yeah. music streamers are listening <laughs> yeah. like, there, if there were a service that yeah. would be amazing put your music out on the net <laughs> please I beg of you iTunes take my Spotify. money Awesome. Trying to pay you. Yes, yeah. take their money and mm-hmm. and mine. But yes, we'll we'll put some of the band names and their SoundCloud links in the episode description in case you didn't catch the names. But yeah, let's listen to some music. Okay, Mel Schenk, thanks for joining us on the Second Year Podcast. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me here. Sure thing. Uh, so to start, I guess, just give a little brief intro on your background in Vietnam and what you do here. Uh, for Vietnam? Well, I arrived here in 1971 mm-hmm. to start with for a year. I came here as a naval officer fresh out of architecture school uh, to manage construction contracts to Vietnamese contractors. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was here, I loved living here. It was a great year for me. I learned a lot about construction, but most importantly, I learned a lot about working with people, mm. especially contractors and, and architects. So I always wanted to come back. Uh, but when I went back to America, I wound up in San Francisco for 31 years. I was always kind of looking for a way to come back, and finally a way to come back came. Uh, I was asked to come to work on a large resort project, so I came here in 2005 okay. uh, to start work on that. And so you've been based here ever since then. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're kind of known for people that do know. Uh, you you founded the Vietnam Modernist Architecture Facebook group. One of Is the that founders. Right? One of the founders. Okay. So a big focus on modernist architecture here. And if you don't mind, could you maybe just give listeners a brief description of what exactly modernist architecture means? Well, for uh, Americans in particular, we don't often know what modernist architecture is because we don't see a lot of it. Uh, when I graduated from architecture school, I really hadn't seen many examples. What I studied was what I saw in textbooks or in slideshows. Uh, but when I came here, I was shocked uh, to see that the streets were full. They were lined with modernist ha- uh, townhouses. And in the hotel where I was staying, I was looking right down on a beautiful modernist villa. I couldn't believe it. Mm. It's like heaven for an architect. <laughs> Uh, particularly one trained as a modernist, which people of my generation were. Mm. So what was I looking at? I was looking at basically the international form of modernism. Uh, and here in Vietnam, they particularly looked to Le Corbusier. Uh, a Swiss architect did most of his practice in France. Mm. Um, really the epitome of the kind of modernism you see here, which is expression of structure, use of uh, reinforced concrete frames, of the structure, which left fairly regular openings along the facades, uh, upon which uh, screens and other elements, functional elements, uh, might be placed. Um, and, and that's, I think, primarily been the primary influence upon Vietnamese modernism. But they took it from there. They didn't just copy it. Uh, they made it their own by adapting it to the tropical climate to start with, uh, particularly by adding large overhangs over windows as well as over the building itself for the rain here, Um, and adding more elements 
to make the modernism here more richer uh, than it's found in almost all the other places around the world. Okay. So why do you think why do you think modernism in this form of it took off here? I mean, you think of obviously people think of Vietnam or cities like Saigon, you know, there's Notre Dame Cathedral and City Hall, these people think of the French colonial and architectural mm -hmm. influence. Why do you think modernism uh, took off so so high here? Yeah, that's been the primary question that I've been trying to research. Why did this happen? Mm -hmm. I had this question when I was here in 1971-72, and I always wanted to come back and try to figure this out. Um, the answers that I've come up with so far are, is that Vietnam was in transition. They were coming out of colonialism, were fighting two wars of resistance. They were looking for a life beyond colonialism. And what might that life be? They were definitely wanted to be modern. They definitely wanted something different. They didn't want to live in the past. And Vietnamese, I think, by nature, look towards the future. Uh, they live in the present. They respect the past, sometimes. Mm -hmm. Not enough lately. But, uh, and then they look towards the future. They're very optimistic people. Uh, so I think they saw modernist architecture as a way beyond colonialism. The other thing that happened was that uh, the French established a L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts de l'Indochine mm -hmm. in Hanoi in 1925. The architecture school there was started around 1928. Mm -hmm. And the young director of the school, Arthur Cruz, had just graduated from L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris. And I, he, we know that he was exposed to people like Le Corbusier. Certainly their architecture and the other architects around Europe that were were coming up with the new modernist architecture. And that appears to be what he taught, because he himself designed a couple of modernist buildings uh, while he was director of the school. And uh, we saw it in the work of his young graduates. You know, over in the, in the years between 1928 and 1945, they only graduated 70 architects. That's hmm. <laughs> not that, you know, that's only four or five right. graduates a year. You know, so there wasn't a lot of them, but those that did come out, they didn't, they didn't do colonial architecture for sure. They didn't do Beaux-Arts architecture, which is what the School of Beaux-Arts is known for. Uh, they started with Art Deco, uh, but they quickly moved into modernist architecture. Okay. And was this uh, nationwide? I know I went back and read one of your pieces you wrote for us uh, a while back, and you mentioned how prevalent it is in southern Vietnam, mm -hmm. but I was in Hue recently and saw some noticed some pretty beautiful houses and the uh, education university, this big modernist sure, yeah. uh, structure. So is this throughout the country? No. Uh, it originally was in, started throughout the country in the north. I mean, the school was in the north. It was mm -hmm. in Hanoi. Uh, one of the first uh, graduates, uh, architect um, Nguyen Kwao Nguyen, uh, who started the first Vietnamese architecture firm in Hanoi in 1933, uh, began as um, mostly Art Deco, but it was really moving into modernism. So he showed that uh, the spark was there in Hanoi. Um, but uh, as the country was partitioned in 1954, they went in different directions. Uh, the, the North was very busy with wartime preparations and operations and didn't have time. Uh, to design big buildings or even houses. Uh, in fact, they were had moved up north into the mountains in the resistance area, and so everything was temporary for them. Okay. And they really weren't able to get back into architecture until, um, you know, really after the American War. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in the meantime, down in the south here, and this is another big question I've had, is, hey, there's some work going on here. I arrive here, and what do I find? Big buildings under construction. The, Univer the University of Architecture was under construction at the time. The General Science Library was under construction at the time. I'm wondering, wow, you know, uh, this right. is amazing that yeah. a country that's in war is looking towards the future and building the infrastructure, the institutions that will build the country into the future. Mm. Uh, so two different tracks, uh, the South definitely went modernist. Mm. Okay. Yeah, and you mentioned that sort of the golden age of modernist construction here was 1940 to 75. Um, and you had another opinion piece for us a while back about the sort of faux colonial building, I don't know if you want to call it a boom, but prevalence in Saigon right now. What's your take on this sort of architecture that, that's been being built here at the moment? Well, I think it's somewhat of a reaction uh, against modernism as we're seeing a reaction around the world in different forms. A lot of the reaction we're seeing around the world is where we're actually moving into a new age, to what I think is the information age. And there's a new architecture coming out of that. Mm -hmm. So that's not really a reaction. They're moving in a positive direction. But other people around the world, it is a reaction. They're looking back to the past. Mm -hmm. The problem with it is, is that you know, modernism was based upon the industrial age. They used the new materials of steel and reinforced concrete, made much lighter buildings. The walls, the enclosing walls, did not need to be load-bearing, so therefore they weren't heavy masonry. They were essentially curtain wall buildings, which is what you've seen over the past 100 years with modernist architecture. It's one of the primary factors which makes it different from the buildings of the past. So now you've got these full colonial buildings coming back, or period revival buildings, uh, that uh, try to make a heavy masonry building, classical building, small window openings and everything that comes with that uh, on a steel frame. Right. or a reinforced concrete frame. So you often look up and they're off introducing cantilevers, you know, which you cannot do in a colonial building because of the heavy masonry. Mm -hmm. The gravity loads have got to go to the ground. You can't put brick or stone in a cantilever. Mm -hmm. uh, so now all of a sudden we're seeing these full colonial buildings with cantilevers and column bases up there on the second floor. Right. And you wonder, who, the, who what are they thinking about? <laughs> right. right. It, it's, it's not honest, okay. for sure. Okay. So are there, I mean, today, are there still Vietnamese architects designing modernist structures, or is this strictly a thing of the past? No, definitely. Uh, when, I, when we say the golden age, mm -hmm. and the founders of the Vietnamese modernist architecture group really are focused upon that. Um, after 1975, not a lot got built here for a decade. Right. Um, so it was going to be interesting to see what was going to happen. You now have a unified socialist government. Uh, what are they going to do? To my mind, and I have disagreement with some of my colleagues about this, is that it's still modernist. Mm -hmm. They are still following the same principles of modernism here, but the materials are different. Um, and uh, they're using a much richer palette of materials and colors. You know, most of the Golden Age modernist buildings are gray mm -hmm. uh, blaster. Right. Now there are all kinds of colors. Mm -hmm. So it's still modernist. Uh, and the architects that I know, the Vietnamese architects uh, the, that are winning awards uh, for their work, it's still modernist architecture. Okay. But now some of them are starting to explore 
What is the information age? We know what the information ar architecture is starting to look like. Frank, Gary, Zaha, Hadid. Mm. But we haven't seen it for houses yet. Okay. Vietnam is where you're going to see it for houses for the first time, I think. Mm. Okay. And I mean, you mentioned among the architects you work with, do you find that there's an appreciation for this, this form? I mean, it sounds like there is. But of course, we both live here in Ho Chi Minh City. We see how much is being torn down on a regular basis. Yeah. Is there an effort or a sense that some of this should be saved and you know remembered? Uh, to some degree, but they're all very busy. Sure. You know, they're all, they've got a lot of work to do right now. Mm. Uh, but uh, one of my best friends, a Vietnamese architect, uh, has a very good firm, small firm. Uh, does mostly kindergartens, uh, primary schools, and houses. But mm. uh, he's a serious student of modernism. He's got a, light, a wall full of books about modernist architects all from all around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so modernism is, is definitely uh, uh, key for him. Um, and therefore, he has a, a great appreciation for the work that was done in, in the, uh, during the war years here. Okay. Um, but you know how, how that gets translated into conservation uh, becomes a matter for the government. Yeah, no, I was interested, again, in one of your pieces, you mentioned that three things that you kind of found for why modernism, again, was big, is big here, that Vietnamese have, or Vietnam has an innate sense of design. I mean, how, how, what sort of examples do you find of that? When you travel up and down the, uh, the coast, mm -hmm. from, from Hue, on down to Da Nang, and especially Hue An, and then down in the Yun and the Chang, and down into the Delta, in Lam Can Ta, uh, what you find are a lot of rural houses uh, that are traditional in form, and they've got usually up tile, uh, Chinese like roofs, uh, but the treatment of the plaster is modernist. Uh, there's a series of houses up in a village north of Winyan that I did a lot of study in that where the patterns are Mondrian-like, Piet Mondrian, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the, the steel artist uh, mm -hmm. from uh, Holland, incredible patterns very sharp colors and, and uh, delineation in the pattern. It didn't, and they, they weren't designed by architects, you know, right. I know that. Right. Um, so to me, that illustrates that Vietnamese people have this innate sense of design. Uh, and I think that's true. You know, when you look at different countries, Japan has it for a lot of things. How do you wrap things? You know, they really have this innate sense of design. Mm -hmm. And I think Vietnamese have it for graphic design, art, and, and architecture. Okay. Um, so moving towards closing, I was wondering if there are any buildings here in Saigon that particularly stand out to you. I mean, I think a lot of people would recognize the Unification Palace, sure. General Sciences Library. What, other, what are some other standouts for you? Uh, one uh, downtown, uh, that I like, starting with the 12 Mavan uh, Gate uh, mm -hmm. uh, along the, the, the new freeway, mm -hmm. beginning of really after you come out of the tunnel. Right. There's a large building there at 12 Mavan Gate, um, very Le Corbusier-like. It's mm -hmm. about 12 stories, I think. Um, uh, very regular and with rhythm, with the openings that all of the structure express so that it makes it's like these series of cubes mm. for 12 stories tall and, and uh, quite a bit wide it's a very large building but mm. people don't often see it yeah i'm gonna have to go find that one yeah. <laughs> okay well uh, that's a, that's an example close by there there's one that uh at nine uh, nguyen kong chu uh, which is at the intersection with uh hodung mao off of uh Hang street 
Hamnyi mm. Boulevard. Uh, and when you turn off of Hamnyi on the Hotu Mao, uh, you see this building right in front of you because it's at the corner where Nguyen Kom Chu comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's eight stories tall. Um, but the, um, and it uses uh, the technique that most Vietnamese modernist architects used of, of uh, the French word, uh, uh, Brie Soleil, which means a screen to block the sun. Mm, okay. um, but the screen's very light, and its overall effect makes a big building look very light and lacy. Okay. It's an incredible building to me when I first wow. saw that. Wow. Right. Yeah. I'm, you don't see this anywhere else in the world. Um, looking at uh, the kinds of buildings that they had the capability to do. Mm-hmm. Pongat Hospital, right, out right. in the Tanbin District, architect um, Chan Din Gwen, also built in 1972. Uh, it's more, it, the building's more like the Bauhaus by Gropius in Germany. So that... There, there was the inspiration, I think, there for that. But it, okay. it's a very complex building. It's a thousand-bed hospital, and it's still running well today. And the yeah, building looks striking. just as good today, mm-hmm. pretty much as the one it was built. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to me, it's it it's it shows the capability the architects had here, okay. and were able to execute. Mm-hmm. Uh, on in terms of houses, uh, the house at eighty-nine uh, Lido Jump. Um, it's an interesting house to look at. It has a lot of uh, uh, what are friends of mine call uh, functional ornamentation. Okay. Because one of the prime characteristics of modernism is no ornamentation. Mm-hmm. Do not use ornamentation. Okay. Ornamentation is used for period revival buildings from the classical past. Uh, this building has a lot of architectonic elements simple elements in a pattern, in a composition, because that's what Vietnamese modernist architecture became. Mm-hmm. When you look at a, a shop house, sur- surrounded on three sides by other buildings, all you've got is a front facade, right. four to five stories in mm-hmm. most cases. It becomes a composition. It's an intellectual composition, putting together elements in the composition. And uh, that, that, that particular house, 89, uh, lead to jump, Okay. Uh, is a good example to look at. Okay. One forty one Van Choi, and uh, when people see it, they immediately recognize it. They've probably seen it a hundred times as they go back and forth to the airport. That's right. the more what other people call the googie style house. Okay. It's got the boomerang shapes. Ah, yes, design. I know. Looks I know like exactly what the Jetsons about. house. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, uh, my architect. Uh, um, <laughs> and evidently, his colleagues in the industry at that time called him Crazy Bun. Really? <laughs> these houses were crazy. Okay. Uh, but he did a lot of these kind of houses mm-hmm. around uh, the, the Ho Chi Minh area. Okay. Uh, another one that he designed that I like a lot better, a simpler house, but a beautiful house, is at uh, uh, 31 uh, Ngo Toi Nghiem in District 3. Mm. Oh, yeah. One of the little side streets. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's that's uh, another large building that I like is the British Consulate General at uh, oh, yeah. twenty five Lay Lay Swan. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. That that's that's a pretty solid list. I need to go check a couple of those out. And yeah, I think that's everything. So thanks thanks again very much for sitting down with us. And listeners, if you guys haven't checked out the Vietnam Modernist Architecture Group on Facebook, it's a great resource. People always throw up 
pictures of interesting buildings uh, from Sa- around Saigon, other provinces, you name it. So definitely check it out. And Mel, thanks again for joining us. All right, thanks for having me. And now it's time for Banh Mi Banter. We go around the table, talk about something we can't stop thinking about. So, Dana, what are you bantering about over your Banh Mi? Well, since we just talked about music, Coy and I used to do this thing <laughs> in the office where we would come up with band names through, like, we would have conversations and just come stumble across, like, a weird combination of words yeah, sure, and sure. decide that was a band name. So we had a couple of good ones, including um, the Crafty Bitches, my favorite. <laughs> yeah, like Pussy Riot, but more religious. Exactly. Okay. Um, <laughs> there was also Human Expiration Day. Yeah, like they're that. pretty dark. Yeah, they're German death reggae. Yeah. <laughs> what was that even from? <laughs> I have no idea. Somewhere. Um, the, what, there was Condiment Calamity for yeah. that. was yeah. just Condiment really Calamity. <laughs> Good alliteration. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there were some great ones. I'm going to try and think of another. One Arm Intruder. One Arm Intruder. <laughs> that was also good. Yeah, so um, that's our hobby, and I'm going to miss doing that all the time. Me too. We should, we should name the podcast name after the bands. We yeah, we're going to title all of these podcasts a different, yeah, after, yeah. yeah. Completely unrelated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Human Expression Day. We'll talk about cats. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sold. Executive decision. <laughs> Koi, what are you bantering about? Well, for me, it's been drinking. <laughs> so we just Is there wrote. Anything a, you want to tell us? A ham jam. Uh, it's called City Beer Station. Mm-hmm. They're this cocktail mm-hmm. place. That's great. Uh, that serves cocktail on the street, like literally a pavement on the street. Mm-hmm. It's like meow with cocktails. Yeah, and, and they're delicious. I've been they're taking. Yeah, super cheap, mm-hmm. like half the price of typical cocktails, mm. yeah. and that's like without happy hour. And yeah. good quality still, like yeah, the, yeah. The yeah I mean, it's an award-winning bartender from. Yeah. Uh, We've been yeah. or something. I've been taking yeah. all of my friends there, and they all loved it. Yeah. From the music to the beer and the cocktails, it's great. Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this plug, up. Plug, 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 plug. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't shut Ninja, up about wink, it. Wink. Like in my life, I use a lot of Saginaw links to just be like, we should go eat at this place. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm gonna banter about the Winter Olympics, which are starting soon Ooh. in Ooh. Pyeongchang, South Korea. Which I would love to know how many people have oh, Googled no. Pyongyang Olympics. <laughs> Instead of yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I know the Olympics are like totally Wait. corrupt and mm-hmm. a mess every year, and people are cheating and so on and so forth. But I, oh. I still love them. Call me old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Summer and winter. I'm a huge ice hockey fan, and that's always fun. Even if Russia's not going to be in it this year, that's kind of weird. Yeah. Because yeah. of a huge doping scandal. Yeah. So maybe yeah. that opens up some room for. Well, Canada's always great. (laughs) Winter Olympics are the only thing we can get excited about because that's the one that we're in. You live in winter. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Yes. Yeah, so I'm excited to watch, although... Oh, I guess the timing should actually be pretty good here. I think Korea's only an hour or two ahead of us. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Two hours. reasonable. Exciting. Yeah, let's watch the Vietnamese bobsled team. We we have a bobsled team. Wait, we have a bobsled team? Oh, I know we have like a skiing or they're something. They're practicing on the they're skiers. skiers. I don't know if yeah. they're in the Olympics Bob's or not life. yet, but they're... Vietnamese. <laughs> but he's really into winter sports. 
boxing. There is, though. There's a Nigerian women's bobsled team that's going to be competing. And that's pretty cool. Impressive. Yeah, and uh, North Korea is sending a team as well. So it should be lots of fun games. Uh, that's that's it for this week's episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you have any feedback, shoot us an email at podcast at Saganeer.com. Let us know what you're thinking. Now, sadly, this is Dana's last episode of us. Uh, uh, we, she yes. will be severely missed. Uh, Dana, do you have any yeah. closing thoughts on her last um, podcast episode? I love you all. Aww. Aww. We love you, too. Aww. Thank you. Let's have a hug. We're going to hug it up. Can you hear the there. sound of us It's hugging? a sound of... Vigorous rubbing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I do not endorse that. <laughs> oh, um, no, it's been, I mean, I've said this uh, on my newfound Twitter account that I'm back to using. Um, plug, plug, plug. <laughs> exactly. It's DFG um, Vietnam. Yes. Um, except it'll be DFG in... Canada? I don't oh. think so. Yeah. I don't know how to change it. Um, no, I've obviously, I've loved working at Saigoneer. I'm still super excited about Saigon and about the website, and I can't wait to see this podcast blow up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so. I will be cheering you guys on from Toronto, Aww. where it is the Winter Olympics all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, Dana just says cool. curling on her way to school. <laughs> school, work. I'm going to become a student. That's fine. Live your life. Anyway, exactly. even if it's in Canada. Yes. <laughs> Say hi to Trudeau for us. And thanks again, Dana, and you as well, Foy. No, thank you. We will thank see you, you all soon. <laughs>